We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. I'm joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Hello. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by ICRT's Southern Taiwan correspondent, Michael Smith. Hello, Gavin. And they are absolutely of no relation. Anyway, tonight we discuss the latest on Kaohsiung's mayoral election, an indictment in the police shooting of a Vietnamese national, a huge fine for US chip designer Qualcomm, the pending retirement of central bank governor Peng Huai Nan, and macaques, Rather troublesome macaques. But we'll begin with how our week began here in Taiwan and an interview with President Tsai Ing-wen was broadcast by San Li E Television. Now, Tsai touched on a myriad of issues during the interview, and these included defending amendments to the Labour Standards Act, where she admitted that the outcome of the move had not quite met with her satisfaction, but had, according to her, managed to level the playing field between employer and employee. She said that while her administration has not met with all of her supporters' expectations, she still remains committed to and will continue to carry out her ideas and ideals. Tsai also talked China, and when asked about the likelihood of Beijing attacking Taiwan, Tsai said that no one can rule out such a possibility, while she also said that she plans to boost Taiwan's indigenous defence industry. Needless to say, Tsai's China invasion comments drew a backlash from opposition KMT lawmakers, who were quick to say that the government needs obviously, to come up with plans to reduce the possibility of said Chinese attack. So, Tsai hadn't given an in-length television interview in some time. And, well, do you think it reassured voters? And did she touch on many of the main issues of the day, Michael? Well, um, down here in the South, obviously, uh, the DPP has a stronghold, and uh, we have a majority of people who do support the current administration and uh, support uh, the party. So from what I'm hearing from the political talking heads that that I'm speaking to is that the entire interview was somewhat reassuring for them because uh, many people commented on how quiet Tai has been since she assumed office. She has, of course, visited various uh, functions and opened uh, uh, shows, air shows or this, that and the other, but she hasn't really spoken a lot. She does post frequently on Facebook and her aides do put out things, but they haven't seen her in public in this way. So... I'm talking to people who are already her natural base and her natural support uh, group, but they were somewhat uh, reassured to be able to hear her speak. They said she sounded confident. She sounded like she had a plan. She knew where she was going. So if nothing else, it seems to have allayed a bit of fears because we were hearing rumors down here uh, a couple weeks ago from various, you know, obviously uh, un, uh, people who don't want to identify themselves, but they were talking about how uh, Ty's ratings and her fallings, it might even lead to the possibility of her not running in the next election and maybe Lai would step in. So all of these rumors were floating around and stuff. So all I can tell you is that in a, in a place where she already uh, has a great amount of support, many of the people I've talked to are reassured and feel like she's back uh, on top. So that's the Southern uh, experience. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's a good point that... Um uh, people do now feel reassured that she's actually done this interview, but it also begs the question as to why she hasn't done more interviews. I mean, if people are um, to the point where they don't really know what she thinks or that they need to be reassured that she's confident in her policies, then I think that's a that's a failing of the presidential office to get their message out and um, to set the narrative not only domestically, but um, in foreign policy as well. I, I think, you know, um, that that is one criticism of the president, that she doesn't engage enough uh, with the media and therefore with the public. 
which is quite uh, interesting. interestingly i did uh, hear from one guy who lives in my building who said that he felt like she had a plan and i said oh what is that plan then and he said I'm not sure. It could be a secret plan. So to uh, uh, Nicholas' point there, I, I, I agree with her. Even though it may slightly reassure people, it also raises a lot of questions as to, you know, why the silence and what are the plans? Well, obviously, what are the, that's what the KMT was asking. What are your plans to deter a Chinese attack? But what about her comments about her policy on the Labour Standards Act, where she actually admitted that it hadn't not quite gone as well, as she had planned. Well, from uh, from the south again, um, we down here, we have China Steel, we have the China Petroleum Company, we have these very, very large state or, you know, mostly state-run uh, industries, and they employ tens of thousands of people. So I was chatting with my wife last night about this, and she and I, to be honest, both of us, we look over these labor laws and the policies and everything, and neither of us can really actually understand what all the fuss and what all the argument is about. And I think that is because we are outside of this element of the, of the workforce. So for many people down here, they've seen these protests, and they, they're just not quite sure because nothing is changing for them in the coffee shop they work in or the trading company they work in. But this is different if you work for one of these large, massive corporations. It is going to affect you. So obviously there are some people who have a very, very passionate feeling about this, but then there's others of us who kind of don't even really understand what the fuss is all about. So, I mean, Nicola, do you think Tsai should talk more to the press? Do you think this is one one interview on Stanley Television in God knows how long she lasted an interview with a television company? Do you think she actually should be out there more facing the public? Absolutely. I think she, um, I think she runs away from it too often. Um, and it's important if she wants to set the agenda, um, certainly um, in foreign policy, it seems to be that China steals a narrative most of the time, that Taiwan is very reactive, that her response is very reactive. Um, and I do think that she needs to engage more with the international press um, to put her message out internationally, but also it seems with the domestic press. I mean, I wasn't aware that this was such a, it's been such a long time since she'd done a television interview um, and if, if her constituents or future voters are wondering what she thinks and wondering what her policies are and wondering if she's strong enough in the job then that's a problem Right, let's move on from that and of course we're popping down to your neck of the woods now Michael, that being Kaohsiung of course, where there's turmoil within the DPP over who will represent the party in the November ballot to replace long-serving and some might say iconic Mayor Chen Ju. Now some... She- Big shoes to be filled there, Michael. But it all is not well with the DPP in regards to the nomination process. Yeah, sorry, Katyn. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, when you said iconic, I mean, it, it, it really is. The word is, it can be taken literally because they use her image and it's likened to a Japanese cartoon that's popular across Taiwan. And she is essentially a, a mascot for the city. You'll see her, her, her image, her sticker, even her silhouette can be identified as like the mayor. And she's been the mayor down here for 12 years. Now, I think we don't give enough credit to former mayors, such as even the KMT's Wu Duan Yi and then the DPP's uh, Frank Xie, because they got a lot of these projects rolling in the first place. But Mayor Chen has been able to cut the ribbons and end uh, the, see the, the final uh, end product of some of these uh, projects that were started a long time ago. So she really has been the face of Kaohsiung for a very, very long time now. And things are not going to plan for her replacement. So she uh, is said to have favored a local legislator down here by the name, uh, a woman by the name of Liu Sifang. 
So Leo was seen as the front runner because everyone thought, well, Mayor Chen has such a deep hold on politics down here. She's uh, so popular, very high approval ratings. Uh, Leo is in for sure. But within just these last few months, we started to see a lot of uh, bickering and contention. There was a book that was published. And in that book, um, uh, Leo was uh, taken to the task for a few things. Frank Scheer was... So what happened was uh, Leo, two weeks ago, pulled out of the race, citing a need for party unity and stuff like that. But that's been perceived by many of the political uh, people down here as actually an indicator that uh, Mayor Chen's uh, preferred candidate or, or her strength in this area is not as powerful as we thought, and she is not able to basically nominate the next person. So Leo is out, and it was also rumored that the other uh, person favored, said to be favored by the Thai administration, that would be Guan Biling, uh, also a female legislator from down here, would be the next one but to uh, pull out. But she has not done so. So we now have four people in the race, and that would be Guan, Guan Biling, uh, Chen Chi Mai, he was a former deputy mayor of Kaohsiung, but he's sort of uh, slightly involved in, uh, uh, by connection to his father with uh, things that happened during the Chen administration. So there's some issue with that. Then you have two very young candidates. You have Lin Daihua and Zhao Tianling. Now, these are two legislators that have represented Kaohsiung um, for just a, a couple of terms now. And they're both in their 40s. And they believe that they should be the young new face of the city. Now, Lin, she has a constituency that is more in the Kaohsiung, the former Kaohsiung County area. She's accusing all of the candidates that are running of not having plans for the former county area of Kaohsiung, which is significantly poor, infrastructure is bad, and et cetera, et cetera. The problem with that is if you go to a place like um, uh, uh, Liu Gui, for example, the township there, I mean, the, the district there, it has a population of 14,000 people or so. And it's quite hard to uh, go out there and try to uh, better the lives of these people when you're talking about getting 14,000 votes. So Chen Chi Mai is now seen by many as the front runner because he secured endorsements from those large labor groups. We're talking about those big people who work for large companies again down here. And so he seems to be the one to beat. Now, Lin is also accusing Zhao of uh, faking telephone polls, of having supporters call in to uh, boost his nomination and all that. So Chen is being very quiet. We haven't heard almost anything from him for the past six months or so. He hasn't popped up except during a TV debate or two, but he doesn't do press conferences. He doesn't speak. So it appears that he's just sort of sitting there and biding his time and hoping that the others will sort of uh, taint each other by uh, fighting and all of this. But uh, Zhao and Lin are making very strong cases that they should be the next leader because they are young and fresh faces. They don't want any association with former administrations and former people. And then you also have the veteran Guan Biling, who has been a part of Kaohsiung's political fabric for a very, very long time. She uh, was supposed to be negotiated, negotiated rather out of the race, according to uh, some sources, but that didn't happen. She did apply for uh, the, the, to run, and she will run, she says. So now it's all about the internal DPP squabbling. However, the nomination doesn't come down to DPP members themselves voting. There will be three telephone polls that will be put out to all people who have a landline. This is funny. They don't call uh, cell phones because they can't be sure that the person's in Kaohsiung. So they'll call landlines and they'll ask out of these people. And it doesn't matter if you're KMT or whatever party, you're allowed to express your opinion. They take these uh, three polls and then they're going to put out a winner. So Chen Shimai has the name recognition that uh, would obviously benefit him in this. 
But we're hearing a lot of squabbling from the remaining three candidates over fairness and all of that. And the DPP is going to have to go out of their way to prove that they're not just doing sort of backdoor deals, if you know what I mean. Um, I, I have a question, actually. I don't get south very much. So I'd love to hear, you know, from you, how significant is the Kaohsiung election in national politics? I mean, what impact or what consequences does it does it have on the bigger picture of politics in Taiwan? Well, I uh, had a chance to interview one of the candidates, uh, the Zhao Tianming uh, uh, legislator, and he told me that, um, in his opinion, being mayor of Kaohsiung gives you a very large bullhorn to be able to uh, demand concessions from the central government or to be able to make a point. It's also uh, increasingly we're starting to see more and more people from the south using their positions as a stepping stone to higher office. And the best example of that would be uh, former Thailand Mayor Lai Chinga, who's now the premier. And many people say he uh, very clearly has presidential aspirations down the road. So it could be that uh, even though Kaohsiung has fallen as uh, cities in Taiwan go population-wise, I don't think we're in the, the top three anymore. Um, still, the city down here is uh, a powerhouse of industry and many other things. So it is still a very important position. And the person who is in charge here does have a bit of sway. So it does make a, a big difference. But the, the more interesting thing for me is just how the city is going to have to uh, change and get used to a new administration after 12 years of Mayor Chen, who like sits at 80-something percent at least in uh, public opinion polls and is just uh, by far the most popular mayor we've ever had down here. So this change is going to be a, a very, very big deal for the city. And there we go. Well, everything we needed to know and more, Michael, about the Kaohsiung election. Anyway, the police shooting of a Vietnamese national in Shinzhou County last August was back in the news this week after prosecutors charged the officer involved with negligent manslaughter. Now, the shooting at the time sparked protests by Vietnamese workers who argued that police used excessive force, while migrant worker support groups argued that racism on the part of the police could have been partly to blame for the incident. Now, the indictment handed down this week, though, said that the officer shot Nguyen Quoc P while he was resisting arrest for suspected theft and vandalism and the police officer's actions were in line with rules governing police use of firearms. However, prosecutors went on to say that the officer's response violated the principles of proportionality and the police officer is considered to have met, though, the conditions of turning himself in after the incident. All of which begs the question of, well, the officer might get off or the officer might not get off. And I spoke with Michael Fahey about the case and where it could go now. So, Michael, do you think this is a breakthrough in the case or do you think this rather sorry tale will continue? continue for many months? Well, many years, likely, Gavin. As you know, the wheels of justice, such as they are, uh, turn slowly. But the, I think the important thing to think, see in this case first is that uh, the case is being handled the same as it would be if the victim were Taiwanese. Uh, the prosecutors in cases uh, where the police use force and somebody dies under, you know, controversial uh, circumstances such as this one, uh, regularly charged the police with negligent homicide. There was a case three years ago in Taoyuan uh, where a Taiwanese man was killed by the police, and the police officer involved was eventually convicted on exactly the same charge. There is another case uh, from uh, about a year ago in Taipei City where the uh, courts reached the opposite conclusion, but the charge was the same. It, the difference between the two cases depended on this very specific facts of exactly what the victim was doing at the time the police shot them. So 
in the end, I, I think that the, the the Vietnamese migrant worker is being treated the same as a Taiwanese victim of police violence uh, or excessive force would be. So that's a good thing. Uh, on the other hand, I do think that uh, there's a growing discussion in Taiwan on exactly what the limits uh, for the police use of force should be, which is also healthy as well. And of course, the, the prosecutors have said that they could ask the court to commute any penalty imposed on the police officer. I mean, is this normal as well? Yes, it is normal. If somebody admits to a crime, admits to their responsibility uh, to a crime, uh, the sentence can be reduced. Uh, that's standard practice. Um, even if he was convicted in this case, uh, the sentence will probably be less than six months, which means that it could be commuted to a fine anyway. So I think it's unlikely that, that the police officer is going to do any jail time. On the other hand, uh, conviction, regardless of whether or not the sentence is commuted, opens up the police officer uh, and the state to a civil lawsuit for damages. Uh, and, you know, the the... It could be, you know, up to 10 million, 12 million NT or something like that. So it, in the end, I mean, this is going to have, if, if the police officer is convicted, it will have some pretty serious consequences for him. What about if the police officer isn't actually convicted? Could the family of Nguyen Quoc Pi still file a civil case against both the police and possibly the county, the city and the state? Yes, uh, they could. Uh, and I think it's in the absence of a criminal conviction, it's less likely that they would succeed, uh, but it's still a possibility. Uh, but what they really, what they, their legal strategy would be to get a conviction in the criminal case, uh, even if the sentence isn't, isn't too long, and then to uh, go after the police officer and, most importantly, the state in order to get uh, compensation. I mean, have we seen other incidents where people have gone after the police and the state for compensation for shootings? Yes. The, the case that I was just telling you about in Taoyuan uh, ended up with a six-month suspended sentence for the police officer, uh, and then the victim's family got about $10 million in tea and state compensation, and then the state will turn around and go uh, after the police officer for that money. Right. Obviously, you said when I introduced you, you said this could take years, but, I mean, do you think both the Shinzu Police Department and basically the Shinzu City Government and even the central government and the, the basically the, the National Police Agency would simply like this case to go away as quickly as possible? Well, I'm sure they would like it to go away as quickly as possible, but that's that's not going to to happen. I mean, we see in cases where there are Taiwanese victims of these kinds of um, police shootings that the the case tends to go on for two or three years. I mean, they they might reach some kind of settlement with the victim's family, and that might make the case go away sooner. Um, but on the other hand, they're they're concerned as a matter of policy that police officers will be afraid to use force in situations where it really is necessary. And so they will want this case sorted out by the courts. It's a pretty controversial issue, as it is anywhere. Um, you know, the earlier cases, the earlier case where there was a conviction against the police officer in Taoyuan, uh, there was quite an outcry in the, in the media and online, and there's a petition on the government join platform um, in support of the police officer. So I think the prosecutors who do work very closely with the police, um, you know, are trying to strike a balance between uh, the police and the rights of victims. I mean, could they simply offer the family of the victim a, a package, so to speak? A set, this will pay you this much, it's gone away. They could. It's difficult for 
state agencies to do that, though. Uh, they usually prefer uh, to let the case grind its way through the court system and let the court decide, because now we're using public funds. And if there's any perception that the police have settled for too large of an amount just because they want the case to go away, uh, the people who are responsible for that decision uh, could could face an investigation. So I, I think we'll see this case uh, continue. Uh, if the Italian case from 2015 is any indication, this will go on for three or four years before it's finally settled. Right, obviously the, the family of Mr. Nguyen obviously can't remain in Taiwan for that length of time. So obviously if they go back to Vietnam, could the Vietnamese government somehow become involved in this down the line if, the, if it takes too long to deal with it in Taiwan? Well, I mean... If I think that you know the migrant rights groups and also the Legal Aid Foundation will be involved in this and will probably be providing uh, legal counsel to the family who can handle it, even if they aren't here. Uh, and yes, uh, I would expect the Vietnamese, you know, diplomatic representatives here to uh, monitor the case and and try to make sure that uh, justice is served. That's that's their job. Could this case lead to concern amongst other migrant workers? who possibly could have dealings with the police. Absolutely. I, I mean, migrant workers anywhere in the world, uh, you know, live, you know, they, they tend to have a limited understanding of the host society that they're in. Uh, there's a lot of rumors and uncertainty. And I, I think that it's very likely that they might have a perception that the police were unduly harsh here. But I, I would emphasize to the listeners out there that, you know, the Taiwanese police... When people resist arrest or try to flee, use force frequently. And in our normal interactions with the police, I think that they're normally very civil and very polite and, and you know, easy to work with. But uh, don't test them in this kind of uh, arrest situation or by fleeing from the police. Uh, there have been, you know, foreigners of other nationalities who have gotten shot by the police uh, doing exactly that. Uh, so that's the that's kind of the takeaway from it. That was me speaking with Michael Fahey. We have to take a short break now, but we will be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Central Bank Governor Peng Huainan was in the news this week. That after he was honoured with the 2018 Lifetime Achievement Award by an international banking publication. The UK-based Central Banking Publication recognises exceptional leaders whose pioneering work in central banking and whose career has left an indelible mark on the central banking community. And while it's not the first award Peng has been honoured with since he became the island's top central banker in February of 1998, it does come as he prepares to retire next month and I chatted with regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold about Pung's tenure at the central bank his legacy and who could replace him so 20 years as the island's top central banker and he's made quite a name for himself yeah, the central banker, uh, Mr. Pung, has been a model of stability, especially uh, with government officials, senior government officials who change so frequently, uh, such as his counterparts at the ministerial level across multiple gov governments, different premiers, and, and he served under three presidents, and uh, he's consistently held the fort over at the central bank, so it'll be sad when he retires. Right. And what what do you think's made him be able to survive for so long in a rather cutthroat sort of business that he's in being a minister? 
Well, it's a a difficult job, and frankly, not a lot of people want to do it. So uh, it would have been very hard to replace him had, a, for example, a president been dissatisfied with his policies and decided not to renominate Pung uh, for, for another tenure. He's already served several five-year terms. Uh, and we see that with the, the rumored replacements. It's a very short list of people who have very similar backgrounds, uh, mostly people who have worked at the Central Bank in the past. Right. And, of course, what is his legacy? What do you think he'll be remembered most for? Uh, exchange rate stability. Uh, the exchange rate only fluctuates within a narrow band over the years, about 10% in either direction. Uh, so sometimes it's around 27 to the U.S. dollar. Sometimes it might be up to 32, close to 33. Uh, but but uh, more importantly, it's his role in ensuring Taiwan's uh, economy is able to continue to revolve around the all-important exports. And an important part of that is keeping the currency at a level that Taiwan's exports can be competitive with those of other countries, such as South Korea. Well, of course, some of his policies have proven controversial, and there has been opposition to several of them over the years. Well, again, a lot of it revolves around the interest, interest rates or, or the currency uh, exchange rate. And you know, some people would prefer that the uh, currency could just float more freely and it's not as tightly as controlled. But uh, again, it, it just uses an important lever for the government to make sure that exports remain competitive. And, and even though he's supposed to be independent as the central bank governor, Everyone knows he's on board with a policy that makes sure that uh, the currency is used uh, to keep exports competitive. Reports from the U.S. government estimate that the currency is is dramatically undervalued, that the Taiwan dollar could be 25% stronger than it is. But, uh, again, the concern would be if the Taiwan dollar was stronger, that exports would be less competitive. And obviously you you briefly mentioned his possible replacement. I mean, obviously to replace this man is going to be rather difficult for the government. Uh, uh, one of the different things here in Taiwan versus uh, other jurisdictions is the person who serves in this role typically is somebody who served at the central bank. Uh, it's not somebody who comes in and out, say, of government or... Uh, from government and academia or even industry. So people who serve in senior banks, not uh, senior roles at central bank, say in the United States, at the Federal Reserve, not necessarily the chairman of the Federal Reserve, but people who are vice chairman or on the board, uh, typically we do see a mixture of people who, who are career employees of these organizations, but also people who've come in and out of the private sector, and and typically uh, the financial world. And we don't see that here in Taiwan. We don't see that with most of the rumored candidates. Uh, And in fact, several of the rumored candidates have already fallen out of the running. So one of the people who who was considered a a candidate was Chen Shimang, who, who was uh, recently approved to be on the control UN. He actually has a background uh, in uh, academia, in, in economics. Another rumored candidate was former Premier Lin Chuan, who recently took a job in the private sector. Uh, your listeners may recall that uh, he left the, the cabinet in last September, was replaced by Tainan Mayor William Lai. And, and there was a lot of speculation that Lin Chuan was going to become the central bank governor, given his background in finance as well. He served as the minister of finance 
about 15 years ago. Uh, but he took a job in the private sector as a chairman of a, a listed company, and there was even some pe- speculation that he took that job simply because he didn't want to be pressured by the president's side to take the job as central bank governor, which is kind of interesting, you know, that, the, the idea that he would actively seek a, a different job so that he wouldn't be available as, uh, to serve as the central bank governor. Uh, so that, that leaves us with with candidates uh, with significant experience, career experience as a central bank governor, and specifically the current vice governor, uh, Mr. Yang Jinglong. He, he's, he's rumored to be the front runner, and people call him uh, in English the continuity candidate because it's simply taking somebody who's worked under Pong for many decades and elevating him to be the governor. Do you think there'll be an immense pressure, though, on the incoming governor to actually keep up with what Pung did for 20 years? Well, that will be the expectation. Uh, generally, uh, although there's a small number of detractors, that Pung was uh, a model of stability, and now we want the continuity candidate to basically do the same thing. Now, one thing that made Pung so successful was, uh, and frankly, this also distinguishes him from many government officials in Taiwan, was his ability to survive at the front lines. And what I mean is his ability to answer questions in the legislative UN uh, or in public forums. Uh, not a lot. He didn't do a lot of media, but he was generally comfortable when he did interact with the media. And we sometimes don't see that with Taiwan government officials. Uh, they might be rather shy. Uh, they're not good under pressure, especially in a public forum like being questioned at the legislative event. Uh, they might not be good at speaking to conferences, whether it's in Mandarin or in English, if it's an overseas conference. And generally, Pung was very good at these things, and that's one of the reasons why he also had a good international reputation. And as you, you said, he won not just this most recent Lifetime Achievement Awards, but he's been highly ranked by global financial world publications for his stewardship of the central bank. Uh, And and that's uh, something Taiwan could be proud of. So finding a continuity candidate who's worked at the central bank and understands the policy, that's easy enough. But will he have the intangibles and and the gravitas, frankly, that uh, Governor Peng has? That's going to be very difficult. And frankly, we don't know if, if current Vice Governor Yang has that ability, although maybe some of the other candidates uh, who are coming from outside the, the central bank might have been bringing that. For example, Minister, uh, sorry, former Premier Lin, uh, obviously Chun Simung is very good with the media, very opinionated. Uh, we, we don't know uh, if Yang can survive that kind of pressure. We do know he has the knowledge of, of central bank operations and currency stability. And do you think Peng will be dearly missed by this government and previous governments and Taiwan as a whole? Well, certainly. Uh, again, uh, he's brought stability. Uh, arguably, he's made significant contributions to uh, economic growth through several up-and-down periods, some very challenging cycles. He, let's, let's take a step back, Gavin, and remember that he became central bank governor upon the tragic death of, of the, his predecessor, who died in the Taoyuan plane crash in February 1998. So it was under these tragic circumstances that he took over. It was also amid the Asian financial crisis. Years later, not long, this was followed by the internet bubble bursting and then SARS and the Iraq war, and then the global financial crisis in 2008. So this is a, an expert who's 
seen several cycles. So, of course, Taiwan will miss the stability. And, and again, I think uh, generally the way he conducted himself and, and his ability to deal with the public and with the pressure and not cave into that uh, is something that will be missed. That was me in conversation with regular ICRT commentator Ross Feingold. And staying with business-related news, the Fair Trade Commission this week approved a request by Qualcomm to pay a record 23 billion NT fine in instalments. The commission fined Qualcomm in October of last year following a lengthy investigation into allegations of antitrust violations related to the company's chip technology. And the fine made headline news due to its being the heaviest ever imposed by the commission on a single company here in Taiwan. Now, Qualcomm has been given approval to pay the fine in 60 monthly instalments starting with a payment of 390 million NT by the end of this month. Now, the Commission says that the, due to the fine's size, it opted to allow Qualcomm to accept an instalment package payment plan in order to reduce the financial burden on the chip designer. And I spoke with Financial Times' correspondent here in Taiwan, Edward White, about the fine and the burden on the company. Well, of course, Edward, Taiwan isn't the only place Qualcomm is in trouble, but it is the only place where a record fine has been imposed on the company. But, I mean, how much of a dent could that fine put in the company's finances? Yeah, Gavin, that's absolutely right. So just last year, Qualcomm was hit with a fine of about $850 million by South Korean regulators. The EU has fined them uh, close to a billion euros for abusing its uh, dominant market position in that market. And Apple, as well, is taking them to court for around $1.2 billion. So it's not uh, unique for Taiwan to be taking this kind of action. In terms of the impact it will have, last year when the fine um, came to light, analysts said that it would probably be a pretty marginal impact on their business. This is a company that has revenues of about $22 billion a year. So while it is an impact, it's uh, not something that's going to really hit them in terms of a share price movement or something like that. Right. I mean, do you think the government here could, or the Fair Trade Commission rather, could have opted to allow the company to pay in instalments due to concerns that it could opt to move out of the Taiwan market? Yeah, I think uh, the regulator has to be quite careful in their approach here. Obviously, they want to be um, doing their job and making sure companies play by the rules. On the other hand, I think there is some um, sort of discussion in the market amongst analysts that the Fair Trade Commission could be seen as acting as a bit of a price fixer to shield um, Taiwan's modem makers and foreign manufacturers uh, from sort of big international companies so and to keep prices low. So they're, they're sort of um, walking on a bit of a thin line. So their approach to still find the company and but let them pay in a way that works better for the company, I think, is probably a pretty uh, prudent way to go. Right. And could there be other problems down the line for Qualcomm in Taiwan with maybe some local companies going, hang on a minute, this fine wasn't enough. The government should have done more to stop this a long time ago. I mean, Qualcomm's in a pretty unique position in the sense that they hold intellectual property for um, that's pretty crucial for how 3G and 4G and even now 5G operate. So I think they're not really um, worried too much about Taiwan competitors. But, you know, they've got bigger worries at the moment. Um, Apple being the main one is considering leaving Qualcomm's chips out of its next iPhone, apparently. So, you know, I think the Taiwan market's not, um, not a, their main concern. But, of course, the Taiwan market is no doubt hoping to poach Apple's business from Qualcomm. 
<laughs> yeah, but I guess this is where things get a little bit complicated in the chip sector because obviously we say chip sector and semiconductor suppliers, but everyone um, has their little niche of the market or big niche of the market as it comes to Qualcomm. Um, obviously, people want the market to be competitive, which is what this um, this measure by the Fair Trade Commission was about. Um, but whether or not that will really free up Taiwan companies to challenge um Qualcomm, I think that's, that's not really the case. It's more about making the environment for Qualcomm's suppliers or Qualcomm's customers uh, a fairer place so that they're not getting overcharged or they're not getting put in a position where Qualcomm holds all the cards when it comes to negotiations. Ron, why do you think the Commission opted to give Qualcomm such a hefty fine, a record-breaking fine? Yeah, I guess, I mean, this investigation, if you go back, I think they've been investigating this issue for about five years, and it's, you know, it's, they're looking at whether or not um, Qualcomm was abusing its dominant position over certain, um, in, in certain chip markets by refusing to provide products to, cut, to clients that don't agree with its conditions. And so those conditions are things like licenses. But it's really difficult to know exactly uh, what the commission saw in terms of how much money they, they think that Qualcomm actually made out of um, you know, acting unfairly. It may have been a case that they had to sort of choose, OK, we're going to take them over this period, so this five-year period, or um, and they potentially could have gone back longer, 10 years, something like that. In the end, I think they, uh, they set down a, their ruling that... Qualcomm had been abusing its position for about seven years, but I guess it could have been longer. Again, it could have been shorter. It's just what information that they felt that they could um, take to Qualcomm and potentially hold up in court if Qualcomm did, did appeal the decision. Right. Do you think it could act as a warning to other companies, especially international companies, about how they operate in Taiwan? I, I think that because, um, as I said earlier, Korea and uh, Europe are taking similar measures against Qualcomm, that kind of allegation that Taiwan's acting unfairly to try and protect its own industry is pro- probably doesn't really stand up because this is, a, this is a global issue with how you regulate these massive tech companies who hold natural kind of dominant positions. They're not necessarily monopolies, but they hold massive dominant positions in lots of international markets. So the fact that the Taiwanese regulators were acting kind of in accord with uh, regulators in Europe and other parts of Asia probably means that uh, I don't think there'll be a big kind of move away from the Taiwan tech sector because of regulation here. I'm speaking hypothetically here. Do you think Taiwan would have acted in such a way and the fine would have been so great here if other countries and territories and trade blocks weren't also pursuing Qualcomm? That's a really interesting question. I personally think that um, they probably feel that they have a stronger case because this was something that other regulators were doing. Um, you know, international, uh, you know, internationally, people from the Taiwan Fair Trade Commission go and talk to regulators in other markets, and they keep a very close eye on what uh, people are doing. And ultimately, I guess, um, you know, some of these cases could get taken to the WTO or something like that. So the fact that all these international regulators are acting in alignment with each other would certainly give, I think, the Taiwan uh, regulators the strength or the, uh, the courage to, to, make such, to make this record fine. And what about problems down the line? If obviously Qualcomm has got 60 months to pay this off, starting with a payment of 390 million NT by the end of this month, what would happen if Qualcomm defaulted on this? What, what legal grounds would the Fair Trade Commission have to take against the company? Um, I mean, I, that's a pretty 
hypothetical um, assertion that I don't think is very likely just because, as we said, you know, it's a $773 million fine. Uh, this company has revenues, um, you know, 22 or well, $22 billion last year, so they're, they're not cash poor. Um, the likely thing is, you know, they're, they're in discussions with various takeover. Um, there are takeover bids for Qualcomm at the moment, and Qualcomm's trying to take over other companies. So it's more possibly more likely that this, um, this fine would get passed on to a new owner. But really, I think that, um, you know, the agreement to pay in instalments is probably just a smart one that means they can help manage cash flow and things like that. It's not really such a big deal. The, the main thing really that this news kind of hides was the fact that Qualcomm didn't actually appeal the amount of the fine um, nor the method used to calculate it, which is something that they sort of threatened that they would do at the start um, when the fine came out in October. And do you think it didn't appeal it because it was also in trouble in Europe and Korea and other places? Yeah, again, really interesting question. I haven't talked to the company about this, but I would suggest that because, you know, they've got um, these other similar fines that they're facing in, in Korea and in Europe, and also, um, you know, a $1.2 billion case, I think, that Apple's taking against them, plus this issue around Apple thinking about not using their chips and their iPhones. It's a case of uh, they've probably got bigger issues to worry about at this stage. That was Financial Times' correspondent, Edward White. And before we go this evening, Taiwan's mischievous macaques were back in the news this week, with the Council of Agriculture pushing for construction of a great wall, or rather a great electric fence to better protect farms from damaged calls by wild macaques, while one academic went a bit further and has been quoted as suggesting that the government remove macaques from the status of being a protected species to that of general wildlife, theoretically meaning that farmers will be allowed to hunt them if they're a nuisance which of course some might argue could be a step too far Nicola oh yeah leave the monkeys alone I'm going to be a bleeding heart about this you can't just randomly hunt monkeys I mean who decides who's the judge in that case that they're being a nuisance or not and who's going to defend the monkeys um, I think I read somewhere that um, they haven't even done a proper study about how much damage the, the macaques are, are causing or whether it is them I mean there's other animals that can cause harm to crops but um, no it just seems a bit too wild west for me uh, yeah I mean I, I agree that uh, we uh, don't know enough, and uh, I agree that there are other animals such as wild boars and stuff like that, but it's quite clear that uh, these macaques, especially the ones that uh, live just on the mountains right at the edge of the southern part of the central range there, so they come down uh, out of the hills and they raid farms, banana farms in particular, and uh, sugar canes. Those are the favorite ones. But they've also started uh, reportedly to be eating leafy vegetables as well. So uh, the Council of Agriculture has already increased the subsidy for electric fencing from 40,000 to 45,000 NT. And they say that they think this electric fence idea, which, by the way, there already are many, many electric fences out in that area. They say putting more of these in is the best way to be able to uh, not harm the macaques, and at the same time protect the crops. Now, um, I did a little bit of research about electric fences, and there's the two sides of the fence on this one. And, of course, you have certain groups who uh, disagree and others who say it's a relatively harmless way if they are maintained properly, if they're done properly. It's a pretty good way of separating uh, invasive animals from a farm. Now, in uh, Africa, in some places, I read about a couple of elephants who figured out how to 
use their tusks to get around the electricity, and monkeys are very clever, as you know, so it's not a cure-all. It's not going to take care of the entire problem. But, I mean, if you gave me the choice of putting electric fences or turning them into a general wildlife and shooting them, of course I'm going to go with the electric fences. Yeah, I I would agree with that if it's the lesser of two evils. But can we not maybe try and find another solution? There must be um, other countries who who have faced monkey problems before and and, uh, have found different solutions that are a little bit more humane, so to speak. Um, You know, create a monkey jail somewhere, I don't know, a, a, a... reserve or just find something a bit more environmentally friendly than using electric fences. To be fair, I mean, the people who are looking at this problem are, you know, uh, School of Forestry and Research Conservation professors and people like this. So they're not, you know, hunters or people who have a a desire to go out and uh, and shoot macaques or anything, you know. So the one thing that uh, uh, you mentioned earlier, we don't re- even really know the number of them. Now, one expert said that he believes there's 200 to 300,000 of them, and he put the reason for a growth in their number as uh, down to people feeding them, which doesn't make sense to me. We have one little mountain over here in Gaoshan that we call Monkey Mountain, Shoshan, and it is populated uh, by, you know, thousands of, of macaques, and perhaps uh, feeding these particular ones over there might be a problem by humans, but the macaque problem that we're talking about here, these are wild ones that live in the foothills, come down into a farm. It, it, it would be very, very difficult, in my opinion, and I'm certainly not an expert here, to think of any way of corralling, you know, several hundred thousand of these wily sort of monkeys uh, without one of these sort of uh, uh, electric fence ideas that they have. Now, as far as how much damage is done, we also don't know exactly that number, but just put it this way. It's enough damage that the local farmers are able to put enough pressure on the central government for them to start subsidizing these things and putting, uh, you know, uh, things up. So the damage must be enough to at least move the political needle in one direction. So, yeah, if you give me a choice between hunting them and electric fences, I don't think we have much of a choice. I think it's going to have to be electric fences. But, of course, they now are eating their green leaf veg, which makes them regular. So good for them. Anyway, that was the show for this week here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Michael Smith. Always a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.